you have your Bibles, take them and uh, turn to Psalm 119 as we look at God's Word. Um, about two summers ago or three summers ago, we started uh, preaching through Psalm 119 and uh, it's got 22 stanzas and uh, we got probably through about uh, 17 of them and we, we realized that we needed to take a break. And so we've taken a break, but we're going to come back and finish Psalm 119. I like to finish what we start. And so through the summer, we're going to bounce back between Psalm 119 and a series on basic Christian beliefs again. Um, so if you have your Bible, Psalm 119, verse uh, 145 to 152, we'll look at this morning. With my whole heart I cry, answer me, O Lord, I will keep your statutes. I call to you, save me, that I may observe your testimonies. I rise before dawn and I cry for help. I hope in your word. My eyes are awake before the watches of the night that I might meditate on your promise. Hear my voice according to your steadfast love. O Lord, according to your justice, give me life. They draw near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law. But you are near, O Lord, and all your commandments are true. Long have I known from your testimonies that you have founded them forever. Father, thank you that we can come before your word now in this attitude of worship. And once again, we're just amazed that you have given us this gift, this gift of special revelation that teaches us about ourselves, that teaches us about you, that teaches us about the way to live. And this morning, it teaches us about how we pray in relation to your word. Prayer is something, Lord, that I struggle with, and I know many others here struggle with, and uh, it's just, again, just an opportunity for us to learn a little bit more about prayer and how it works with the word. Father, would you open our hearts so that we might understand these things? Sometimes they can be just words on a page, and they can go in one ear and out the other ear. But Father, I'm asking that you'd allow these words to settle in our hearts and in our minds, that um, they would really have an impact on us as we go out into this week and as we apply them to our lives. Help, I pray, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, I am not a, a real good individual when it comes to computers, and I don't know a whole lot about them, but I do know that with computers, you need to have operating systems. And there's uh, various kinds of operating systems. I can name some, but I don't really know much about them. But an operating system, to my understanding, is something that helps your computer run smoothly. It just makes the computer work. And when you load on programs, it's the one that makes sure those programs run properly and uh, that there's no conflicts in your, in your computer. So every computer needs to have an operating system loaded into them. It's the same way with life. I think God has... Not a, God has designed for us an operating system that is absolutely essential for us that we load it into our lives in order that we can function properly. And all the programs then that we would put into our life, whether it be relationships or finances or raising kids or marriage, all of those things run best with this particular operating system running in the background of our lives and in fact making sure those programs run properly. And that operating system is the Word of God. You come to uh, Psalm 119, it's the longest chapter in the Bible, it's 176 verses, and without any argument, you can say 173 of them uh, contain a direct, explicit reference to the Word of God. I think two more 
contain a veiled reference. So 175 out of 176 verses refer to the Word of God. And as the psalmist goes through this particular psalm, he again and again shows the relevance of the Word of God for our life. And that as we load different programs into our life, they run best with the Word of God operating in the background. So you start at the beginning of the psalm, um, Psalm 119, verse 1 uh, and 2, and you find, Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. That word blessed is a word that means happiness. Oh, the happiness of those whose way is blameless, who walk according to the Word of God. And so those first eight verses are a description of happiness. And that true, meaningful, lasting happiness is only found when it runs with the Word of God in the background of our lives. Then you jump ahead to the next eight verses, the, the Baith verses, starting at verse 9. And these are verses that have to do with holiness. How can a young man keep his way pure? By keeping it according to your word. Verse 11, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. And so this whole operating, uh, or, or this whole program of holiness which is a life that is lived in a way that is pleasing and honoring to God, that life works best when we have the operating system of the Word of God loaded into our life. And so if you want to know what it is to be a man or woman of holiness or of godliness, it will only work out properly when you load your, your mind and your, your, your heart with the Word of God. We just had this fellow in our church a couple weeks ago, John Wason, who, uh, that's what he does, is he recites the Word of God and then presents it in dramatic fashion. And he did for us the book of Philippians. He has loaded the operating system of the Word of God into his heart and life through memory. And that's one way in which we do it, by memorizing Scripture. Another way that we, we do it is through meditating on Scripture, as we just mull over a phrase or a text again and again in our hearts and minds. Another way that we do it is simply reading it. By having a disciplined time in our life, a daily time, when we read the Word of God so that we load that operating system onto our lives. The program that he's talking about this morning is the program of prayer. And from the psalmist's point of view, if we want to be men and women of prayer, the way that that is going to run best in our life is if we've got the operating system of the Word of God operating in the background of our lives. And so he begins... By, 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 by telling us a little bit about prayer. And the first thing that he reminds us about prayer is there's an earnestness in prayer. Uh, he, he begins right off the top by saying, with my whole heart, I cry to you. There's very few things that I think that we do with our whole heart. There's so many distractions that come across our path. There's so many things that vie for our attention. Multitasking is something that is more and more um, uh, attempted by many people, and we continue to find out that most people are not good at multitasking. Well, the same goes with earnestness in prayer, where he says, with my whole heart, I come before you in prayer. And his earnestness is something that is, again, in the background of the Word of God. And we see a couple things. Um, I wish in my own life that I was more earnest in prayer. I must admit, the times when I'm really earnest in prayer are times of desperation, there are times of desperation in our marriage. There are times of desperation when we're raising our kids. There are times of desperation when we've got big, big decisions to make. And those are the times where you really sort of roll up your sleeves and you get earnest in prayer. We're most urgent in prayer during times when we hit the wall. Times when we hit these, 
these things that we just, we can't handle on ourselves, and so we immediately go to God. Or at times, um, uh, the first thing that we notice in his urgency here is, is he uses three imperatives, which I find fascinating in prayer, because imperatives are a command. Uh, that's what they mean biblically, so they are commands. He commands God. The first thing that he commands God is in, in verse 45, where he says, answer me. It's like he's desperate, he's, he's earnest, and, and he's, he's saying, God, you have to answer me. And I think this is in the context of needing guidance. I think you might have been in those situations. I certainly find myself far too often in those situations where I need guidance. I just need help. I need some clarity on a situation. I need some wisdom on something. And, and I've been praying about it and I'm thinking about it, but nothing's really happened. And then finally I said, God, you have to answer me. I need to solve this situation. And so he's hit the wall. He doesn't know what to do. And so he's saying, answer me, God. Another kind of situ- word that he uses in, in verse 46 is save me. Again, it's, a, it's another imperative. And that seems to be more in the context of he needs deliverance. That, 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 that with all of his heart, with, with all of his mind, with all of his energy, he has found himself backed into a corner. He can't get out of it. And so he, he basically commands God, save me. Get me out of this situation that I find myself in. Deliver me from this economic trouble. Get me away from my adversaries. Help me with this relational issue that I'm in. Deliver me from this disease. And so we cry out to God, save me. It's sort of this this act of urgency that's on our lips and, and on our minds. The third imperative is one that we find in verse 149 where he says, hear me. I'm sure you've got to those points when you're praying to God and you just feel like your prayers are floating around in the room or they hit this glass ceiling and they bounce back down to you and, and there's no real sense in your heart and life that you're connecting with God. And so it's like he just says, God, you've got to hear me. And so with these three imperatives, answer me, save me, hear me, we, we get a sense that, that in his desperation and in his urgency and in his earnestness, he's crying out to God for some assistance. I wonder sometimes why there's not a greater desperation to our praying. I wonder if it's because sometimes we can try to manage most things on our own and we're fairly efficient at doing those sorts of things. I wonder if it's because we don't really believe that God is able to intervene and to deal with the situations that we find ourselves in. Sometimes there's a lack of desperation in our praying because there's sin in our life and it creates this wall between us and God. There's any number of reasons why there might be not greater desperation in a praying. I remember as a young boy, I grew up in a Pentecostal um, background, and so was part of a lot of Pentecostal churches, and there was a period of time in which we had what we called tarrying meetings, and tarrying meetings were, were really long, 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 long prayer meetings, and uh, I was dragged to them once in a while as a boy because my dad was a pastor, and that was one of the hardest things in the world for me to be part of. But they would start at maybe 8 o'clock at night, and you'd never really know when they would end. Sometimes they would go to 1, 2, 3 o'clock in the morning. But there were times when the church just gathered together, and, and they just called upon God. They cried out to God. They cried out to God for, for church issues, for community issues, for family issues. And there was a, a desperation that was reflected in their tearing. And it was, we called them tearing meetings because sometimes they say, we will not leave until we have heard from God. We will not stop praying until there's confidence that God has heard us and listened to us. 
And you notice that twice in this psalm, in verse 145 and in verse 147, he uses the word cry. Well, that is a, that is a word of desperation. The word, the word means to draw attention to oneself by the audible voice of, or use of one's voice in order to establish contact with somebody else. Help me! Think of somebody who's skiing on Mount Washington and they fall into a tree well and they just sit there. And they, in their own mind, they rehearse, well, I need help. Somebody help me. Somebody help me. Well, that's not going to attract any attention. And so while they're sitting down in the tree well, they, help me, help me. They, they cry out with a loud voice. Or if you're lost in the forest somewhere and you're, you're wanting people to find you, you don't sort of sit there and think, well, eventually they're going to find me. And you just, you know, if I'm just quiet enough, long enough, they'll find me. You cry out. There's an audible um, component to your desperation there. And I think we need to find this sometimes in our praying. That, that there's nothing wrong with crying out to God. There's nothing wrong with verbalizing in an act of desperation what it is that we want God to do for us. How often do you raise your voice in desperation to God in prayer? Why is it that we feel that we've got to be so reserved and so quiet and so silent in our praying? Where is this calling out to God that we read so often in scriptures, not only just here? So there's this audible reality to his praying, which reflects part of his desperation. But then there's a a second thing, I think, that reflects his desperation, and that is this internal reality of his heart. It says, with my whole heart. I cry out to you. That tells me that he's focused his mind, his emotions, his affections, his soul, that every fiber in his being is focused on getting in touch with God. That his situation is so desperate that that what's going on in his life is, is so critical that everything in him is focused on communicating with God. And so there's this desperation that's reflected in the the imperatives answer me hear me save me there's this desperation that's reflected in his voice and in his heart but there's also an earnestness that's reflected in when he prays and how long he prays notice verse 147 i rise before the dawn and i cry for help It's that word, rising before the dawn, can also mean I prevented or I wanted to prevent the dawn from happening. In other words, his burdens were so heavy, his needs were so great, that if he could, he would stop the sun from rising until he had got through to God. That's real earnestness. That's real desperation. That's real urgency to get up and say, God, that sun can't come up because I haven't heard from you yet. You haven't responded to me yet. I haven't heard you speak to me from, my, from your word, so don't let the sun rise until I've heard from you. That's a, that's a desperation. And that's kind of cool. I, I like that sort of realization that, 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 that he needs God to intervene in his life. And I think what he's saying is, God, this, this is the day that's ahead of me. I've, I've got this to deal with at work. I've got this to do with my spouse. I've got this to do with my family. I've got decisions to make with my money. And I'm so confused and I don't know what to do. And there's so many options. And God, I don't want to set foot in this day until I've heard from you, until I've got a word from you. And so he says, I will prevent the dawn 
until you reveal to me a promise or an encouragement or a warning or an instruction that will help me and show me how to act and show me what to do this coming day. The New Living Translation says, I rise early before the sun is up. I cry out for help and I put my hope in your words. But that's not where he starts. Then he, he comes and he says in verse 148, My eyes are awake before the watches of the night. Another place in the psalmist, we read that David says, I long for the night watches so that I might meditate on your word. In other words, he wants to wrap up his day with a reflection on the promises of God, with a reflection on the answers of God, on a, on a reflection with the way God has interacted in his life through his word. He wants to say, thank you, God, for guiding me. Thank you, God, for directing me. Thank you, God, for helping me. Thank you, God, for keeping me on the straight and narrow throughout this day. I know some of you might think this is craziness, but you say, how can I pray like this? How is it possible for me to rise before the dawn and then to stay up after the sun has gone down? Well, I see evidence of this lots of places. There are, are, are often days in my week where I get up before the sun is up and I drive to a meeting or I drive to an appointment or I drive to work. And as I go down a couple streets, you see the blue glows emanating from their living rooms and from their hallways and from their bedrooms. I go to work and sometimes it's been a long day and, and it's 10 o'clock at night and I'm coming home and the sun has gone down. I drive down those same roads and I look in those same windows and I see those same blue lights glowing from the window. They've had the TV on from the, before the sun came up to after the sun went down. They've been able to, to be, be consumed and to be involved in this watching of TV in the same way that David is talking about prayer. I, I read and, and I see stuff on W5 and 2020 on, on teenagers and texting. How, how that often they, they get up and the first thing they do before their alarm has even come up and before the sun is up is they're texting their buddies. Their thumbs. I, don't, I can't even work mine like that. But they're just going a, a thousand miles a minute texting their buddies. And then they're texting all day long. And then, you know what, they go to bed and when the lights are off, they still are texting their buddies, planning stuff for the next day. So there are teenagers up before the dawn, texting their buddies. After the sun goes down, texting their buddies. We can do this kind of thing. I know people who are on Facebook. Facebook is this continuing phenomenon, which I don't really get, but some of you get. People are on Facebook before the sun comes up. That's the first thing they do when they get up in the morning is they go to the computer, they turn on Facebook, and they tell the world what they're doing or they check out what everyone else is doing, and then throughout the day they're on Facebook, and then the last thing they do before they go to bed at night is they check their Facebook. So there we have it. Three examples of before the dawn, watching TV, texting, checking Facebook. After the sun has gone down, watching TV, texting, checking Facebook. So what the psalmist is saying here is not any way outside of the realm of possibilities. It's simply a matter of priorities. It's a matter of what is important to us. It's a matter of what we say, this I have time for, this I don't have time for. It's really as simple as that. And so for the psalmist, it mattered for him that he got up in the morning, and it's like that song we sing, Word of God Speak. And as he gets up in the morning, and as he thinks about his day, he says, Word of God Speak. And then as he goes through the day, and as he comes to the end of the night, before he goes to bed, the last thing that's on his mind is, this is what the word of God said. 
Thank you for speaking. Thank you for guiding. Thank you for directing. Thank you for warning. But then how does this all relate to the Word of God? Well, this is where we wait for the operating system to kick in. This is now where prayer ties in with the Word of God. And this is the critical part because the urgency and desperation of of prayer are tied with waiting to clarity from God's Word. It's not just praying and then going out and doing whatever you feel like doing. It's praying and waiting for God to speak to you through His Word and only moving when God speaks to you. And this is one of the hardest things for us to do. There's a story in the Bible about King Saul. King Saul was the first king of Israel. Some of you might be familiar with this, 1 Samuel. And um, King Saul uh, was to go and fight the Philistines. And so Samuel had said to Saul, okay, I want you to wait here until I come. And when I come, I'm going to offer the sacrifices before God. And then you can go and you can go do your, your kingly stuff and fight. So day one, two, three pass and no Samuel yet. And the men are starting to get anxious, and the Philistines are amassing. Day five, six, and seven come along, and the, the men are getting more agitated and more worried, and the Philistines are continuing to gather. Middle of the seventh day comes along, and Saul says, I can't wait any longer. And he offers the sacrifices. And as he's offering the sacrifices, who should show up but Samuel? Why have you disobeyed the word of God? Why have you not waited on the word of God? And we know that resulted in his loss of the kingdom. He had the desperation, but he wasn't willing to wait on the word of God to work itself out in his situation or his life. You look at verse 145 again as we come back to this then. You get this sense of desperation. Answer me, Lord, and I will obey. See, I, I, I love what he's doing there because I think what he's saying is that sometimes God answers us in the form of obedience. Okay, you're having trouble with your, your, your wife? Then you need to love her today. Well, I didn't really want to read that part of Ephesians, Lord. Or, or you know, it, it might be, um, you might need to read a commandment about lying. And, you know, as you're reading, you're meditating, and, and you've got a business decision that you've got to make that day, and all of a sudden you read, well, thou shalt not lie. And, well, that's not what I wanted to hear, God, because I, I had a way to get around that. Well, no, if we want God to answer us, sometimes it's contingent upon us being obedient to the word. And his answer is directly related to the word of God being applied in our life that day. As one person wrote, um, revelation without obedience is not wholehearted prayer. In other words, why should I be praying to God if I'm not prepared to obey God? So that's where this operating system of the Word of God is so important in the background of our lives. Lord, answer me. Okay, do this. Well, that's not the answer I had in mind, God. No, the answer is in obedience to the Word of God. Second thing, look at the urgency. In verse 146, save me and I will keep your statutes. I don't know entirely what's going on, but it seems like that, that he had got himself into a pickle or he had found himself backed up into a corner somewhere. And as he was there, sometimes it's the word of God that gets us into those situations. And so we find ourselves in trouble. You know, it says in, in Matthew that persecution comes because of the word. And so sometimes we get ourselves into trouble because we're being obedient. Um, but, but sometimes we, we think, well, if I just get out of this situation, I'll be a little bit more of a silent Christian. We say, no, God, save me in order that I can continue to obey your word. 
I don't care what it brings into my life. I don't care the persecution or the difficulty. I just need out of this situation, and you get me out of this, and I will continue to obey you. He's not using God, though, as a get-out-of-jail-free card here. He's simply saying, this is the, the impulse of my life. As I pray, God, as I look at this day ahead of me, save me, and I will obey your word still, even if it means trouble again this day. I was thinking of Judges when I was reading this. Um, Judges is a fascinating book in the Old Testament, but there's a passage there which is very similar to this, except the outcome is different. The people of Israel cried out to the Lord saying, we have sinned against you because we have forsaken our God and have served the Baals. And the Lord said to the people of Israel, did I not save you? There's the same word. Did I not save you from the Egyptians and the Amorites, from the Ammonites and from the Philistines? The Sidians also and the Amalekites and the Maonites oppressed you. You cried out to me. There it is again. Cried out to me. And I saved you. There it is again. I saved you out of their hands. And then listen to this. Yet you have forsaken me and served other gods. Therefore I will save you no more. Go and cry out to the gods whom you have chosen. Let them save you in the time of distress. In other words... We can't, there, where is the reality of saying, save me, and then when God saves us, we just ignore him and go do whatever we want to do? This is where prayer and the word of God go together. Save me, and I will continue to obey. I will keep your commandments. And then he goes on in verses 147 to 40, 148, and he says there that I rise before the dawn and I cry for help. I have put my hope in your word. You know what I think he's doing? When he gets up in the morning, he unrolls one of his scrolls. And as the sun is just trying to creep up, he's reading this scroll and he's reflecting on it. And he's saying, God, you know what I face today. You know what I'm facing this week. You know what it's like in my house. You know what it's like in my workplace. You know what it's like in my school. And this is what I'm facing. And would you help me? Would you give me some instruction in your word? Because I hope in your word. And so as he's praying, he's reading through the scripture. And all of a sudden, he fastens onto a, a promise or a warning or an encouragement or a commandment. And that's what sustains him. And that is the help that God has given to him. And so his hope in the word, God fulfills it. And as he gets to the end of the day, he says there, I meditate on your promises. I think what he's saying is at the end of the day, he sits down and he thinks, wow, God, you blew me away. I didn't realize how true your word is. I didn't realize how right your word is. I didn't realize that even though it went against all the counsel I was getting, it was the right thing to do. Or I didn't see this blind, I had a blind spot and your word saved me from it. And so from the beginning of the day when he hopes in the word of God to the end of the day when he meditates and thanks God for his word, his whole prayer life is wrapped up in, in the word of God. Paul writes, you know, in another place, pray without ceasing. And I think he's sort of saying the same thing that the psalmist is saying. And I want to just offer this out. Sometimes we, 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 we are good with the atmosphere of prayer. And we say, oh, yeah, Paul, I can do that. You know, I, I am praying. I get up in the morning and I'm, you know, I'm shaving and I'm having my breakfast and I'm praying and I'm asking God. And then I'm driving to work. I always pray when I drive to work. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm working, I'm thinking about you, God, and I'm driving home and I'm praying and, and you know, I'm out mowing the lawn and I, I'm praying and you know, I, I do go to bed and I fall asleep praying. So, you know, I, I do do this, Paul, you know, up before the dawn and, 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 you know, down when the sun goes down. 
That's the atmosphere of prayer. But I think what the Bible and what the psalmist often talks about that we need to also incorporate into our life is the habit of prayer or the discipline of prayer. In other words, setting aside a particular time in a day when we commit ourselves to praying before God. Adding the habit of prayer and putting that in, into the context of our atmosphere of prayer. You know, again, uh, you think about this kind of stuff and, um, you know, and I, we get up early for work without any problem. I can get up quite easily to go fishing at 4 o'clock in the morning. Anybody going fishing Monday? I'll go. Um, I can. I, you know, some people are very regular at, at, at coffees. Or they're, they're, they watch a program on TV without fail every single week. They never miss it. Or they eat dinner at 6 o'clock every night. Um, so there's habits that they've, they've built in. There's a fairly clear schedule. Well, why can't we write prayer into that kind of a schedule? Why can't the habit of prayer become a priority in our lives? You know, discipline is not synonymous with legalism. I think we've, we've done that in the church. Don't tell me I have to pray every day. That's just making me a legalist. Well, if you say I have three square meals a day, and if I were to say, well, you're a real legalist, you'd say I was nuts. Because eating is just something that is good for you, and you should do it a couple times a day. It's the same with prayer. To, to have the discipline of prayer is not the same thing as being a legalist when it comes to prayer. And so I think what the psalmist is reminding us here is that we need to incorporate into our lives the habit or the discipline of regular prayer. Uh, secondly, the grace of prayer, and we'll, we'll try and move through these quickly. Um, Psalm 119, verse 149. Uh, this is an amazing text again. Hear my voice, and listen carefully now. According to your steadfast love, and according to your justice, give me life. Uh, the one thing that I find fascinating here is the psalmist is not like Jonah or Elijah. When his life gets difficult, he doesn't walk around like Elijah and just say, okay, God, take my life, I'm done. Um, or like Jonah, you know, sit out under the sun and say, okay, God, just please kill me. I'd be better off if I was dead. You don't get that from the psalmist. What, what you get from him is, is this zest for life, is this desire for life, is when things get bad, God, would you make them better for me? God, as long as I have breath, then I have opportunity to share of your greatness and your goodness. So he always looked at life from that perspective, that, that when he had breath, he could t speak of the wonders of God. When he was dead, he says, who can speak of you, God? And so you see that here, preserve my life, you know, keep me going, God. And what are the graces in prayer? Well, the first one is prayer is not about what I deserve. Prayer is not about what I deserve. He says, answer me according to your loving kindness. That's the character of God. That's the grace of God. That's the mercy of God. Answered prayer is rooted in the character of God, not in anything in us. And you, you think about that. I love this for me. Answered prayer is not based upon my performance, but it's based on the character of God. Isn't that freeing? You know, I mess up within seconds of getting up in the morning often. And if God were to say to me, okay, Paul, uh, I've heard your prayers. You know, I know you're pretty desperate, but you got to go a whole day living good for me. 
You might be able to do it, but I don't do it. I try, and I, I do okay sometimes, but it's not consistent. I am so thankful that God answers me according to his loving kindness, not according to my performance. Or what about um, God answers me not according to what I deserve, but according to his character? Isn't that so wonderful? There is so much that God does for me that I don't deserve. There is so much that God does for me in spite of what I deserve. And the psalmist said, realize this in his desperation and his urgency. Oh, God. I know it's not based on my performance. I know it's not based on what I deserve. I just, I just throw myself at your character, at your loving kindness. Answer me because you are gracious, because you are merciful, because you know I am but dust. So that's the first grace that we see in prayer. The second one is prayer is not about what I want. Prayer is not about what I want. That's also a grace, you know. As we grow to understand prayer better, we, we grow to understand and we begin to pray like Jesus, but not what I will, but what you will. Or when we have the Lord's Prayer, thy kingdom done, or thy kingdom come, thy will be done. And so what the psalmist is saying here, and different translations get that last phrase differently. The, the, the ESV says, give me, or according to justice, give me life. Other translations say, answer me according to your word. Save me according to your word. Help me according to your word. Again, what he's saying is, God, I, I know that often my desires are skewed. Often what I want is not the best thing. Often what I want is not the good thing. In fact, I don't always know that what I want today is the good thing for four weeks from now or four months from now. And in fact, my wants change. So don't answer me according to what I want, but answer me according to your eternal word. That is also a grace of God. To let God work his will out in our lives and in our situations. There's a famous preacher a number of years back, um, uh, Harry, Irons, Harry Ironside, and I believe he was out of Moody um, Revival Institute in Chicago, if I'm not mistaken. He tells about a meeting that he had with an older, very godly man early in his ministry. The man was Andrew Fraser, and he was dying from tubercul- tuberculosis. And Ironside went to visit him in, in the hospital, and as he was there, he chatted with the guy, and the guy could barely speak um, above a whisper because his lungs were so consumed by the disease. But he said to Ironside, young man, he said, you're trying to preach Christ, are you not? He said, yeah, I, I, that's what I'm trying to do. He says, well, sit down a little and let us talk together about the word of God. And Ironside tells how he then opened his Bible and, and until his strength was gone, he unfolded one passage after another, teaching truths that Ironside before that time had never appreciated or perceived. Before long, it says that, he says that tears were running down his face. And he said to the man, where did you get these things? Can you tell me where to find a book that will open them up to me? What school did you go to? Where did you learn this stuff? And the man replied to him, dear young man, I learned these things on my knees on a mud floor in a little sod college in the north of Ireland. There with my Bible open before me, I used to kneel for hours at a time and ask the Spirit of God to reveal Christ to my soul. And to open the word to my heart. He taught me more on my knees on that mud floor than I could have ever learned in all the seminaries in all of the world. This notion of praying the Bible 
or this notion of having prayer functioning in our life with the operating system of the Word of God in the background of our lives. That's what I think the psalmist is trying to encourage us to do, to pray the Word of God, to pray with the Word of God in the background, to pray with the desire to obey the Word, to pray with the desire to hear from the Word, to pray with the desire to, to have our lives governed by the Word of God. That's the grace that he found in prayer, that, that God spoke to him out of loving kindness and that God answered him not, as he, um, not according to what he wanted but according to his word. And finally, our confidence in prayer. Uh, I'll just mention these things quickly. Um, we spent a lot of time in the psalm. Where, where, where does this confidence come from? They come from, I think, two places. One, uh, he says there, but you are near, O Lord. You are near. As, a, as a Paul writes to the Colossians, let the word of God dwell in you richly. We have the spirit of God that lives in us now. We have the promises of God that I will never leave you or forsake you. And so we may be assaulted. He says, you know, my enemies are near to me. So we may be assaulted from people around us and we may face trouble from, from workmates or from family members or whatever it might be around us. But God is nearer still because he lives in us. And that is great confidence. You know, you can be persecuted. You can have the Bible taken away from you. You can be set in a cell in isolation, but nobody can stop you from communing with God. Right? Because he's in you. Because he's nearer to you than anything else. And so his confidence is in prayer is built in the nearness of God in his life. And the second thing that fosters his confidence is the security of God's word. Where he says... He says that I have known from my earliest days that your decrees never change. You know, I, I, I'm sure I could have, have a number of, of some of the older saints that are here this morning come up and, and testify and say, you know what, I have walked with God for 50, 60, 70 years, and my confidence in his word is stronger today than it was when I started that's what the psalmist is saying here. From my earliest days, I began to trust in your word. I began to hope in your word. I began to obey your word. And, and I know that your word never changes. I know that your word is tried, trusted, and true. And so my, my question is, is that what you're feeding your soul with? Are you saying, I have confidence in the eternal truths of God, or I have confidence in Dr. Phil? I have confidence in the eternal truths of God, and I'm going to put them into my kids' lives, or I'm going to teach my kids other things of importance. What is it that we're, that, we're, that we're feeding our souls on? What is it that we're basing our life on? Are you starting young to trust in the word of God? The psalmist says, from a young age, I learned to trust in the eternal word of God. So what's the operating system of your life this morning? I know there's lots of operating systems. For some, it's material success. That guides every decision that they make. For some, it's relational health and wholeness, finding the right mate, keeping the right mate, um, anything to do with relationships, social circles. Everything in their life is guided by the operating system of relationships. For some, it's just pleasure and self-centeredness. Everything that they do in life is guided or directed or filtered through that oper operating system of, of what I want and, and what feels good to me. Psalm 119 is telling us again and again, the operating system that God has designed for your life and my life is the word of God. Plant it in your heart. 
memorize it, meditate upon it, read it, hope in it, trust in it, obey it. How's your prayer life today? Why not stabilize it by becoming more and more a person of the Word of God?